my topic today is identity and contentment, our identity in Christ and contentment. And those issues, those topics are near to me because they're so relevant. And I know when you hear identity today, you might be thinking of gender issues that comes up all the time, but there's so much more to identity. Who we are or who we think we are is a big deal. When you meet someone new, what do they typically ask? They say, well, Robin, uh, tell me about yourself. What do you do? If you're in college, you'll get asked, what's your major? Thousands of times. Where are you from? What do you like to do for fun? Or if you're applying for a job, this is always interesting. They ask, what are your strengths and what are your weaknesses? We realize that all of those questions are attempts to quickly try and figure out, in kind of a nutshell, who someone is. And being at this church, at Grace Church, you're meeting new people all the time. And we are very interested in that question of identity. We say things like, are you an athlete, or we mark people as the athlete, the artist, the musician, uh, the visionary. That's when you hear a lot. Uh, Are you a cat person? Are you a dog person? Are you a people person? So all these things are attempts on us, on our part, to figure out who someone is. And I wonder if you have ever had those experiences, like I have, where someone kind of misidentifies you as a type or as a personality. This has happened often. When I was a kid, everyone would always say, Oh, Kelly, you're so shy. I heard that multiple times. And was I shy? Maybe. I think I was just maybe less vocal than my sisters or some of my friends, and I didn't really talk unless I had something to say. I work in the accounting department, as Lauren mentioned, but by no means would I identify myself as an accountant or as a numbers person. And actually, if you looked at some of my test scores, you would know I'm not a numbers person from high school. Uh, My favorite example of this kind of misidentification actually happened probably two years after I'd started working for this church. I was helping one of our older members, gentlemen, and he asked me where I was from. And I said, well, I'm from Northern California, from Santa Rosa. It's, you know, in the Bay Area, all of this. And he kind of looked, you know, confused by that. And he said, no, I meant what country are you originally from? Because I don't recognize your accent. And I was so confused by that, and he was confused, thinking I was from some country. So I thought about that. I still think about that sometimes, uh, what accent I have. So because of that great confusion with identity and my identity, I was excited for this topic. And there's a number of ways that we could approach identity. It's a massive theme. So I want to give you kind of a roadmap of how we're going to look at it today so that you know what to expect We're going to look at it from its broadest form, identity, and then we're going to narrow down a bit into the identity of the Christian. And I'm not going to address any kind of gender issues as they relate to identity because that's just a whole other message or a series that we could do. So I want to talk about our identity as Christians and then the implications of our identity, the primary one being contentment for us. And we're also going to be looking at a lot of different scriptures, so please be prepared to flip around a bit. I will also have them, many of them, on the screen. And our outline, how we're going to approach this, is simple, and it sounds a little bit like an existential crisis, but I think it works as we're going to move through this. Our three points are going to be who am I, why am I, and what now? So who am I, why am I, and what now? Let's start with that first one. Who am I? I did a Google search 
and I just typed in, who am I? And it was kind of fun because I think Google was concerned because <laughs> besides a movie and a couple song titles with that in the title, the first hits that I got were psychiatric uh, websites or self-help or advice websites. And these either offered me to put me in touch with a therapist or they offered quizzes that I could take to figure out who I am and hopefully gain some level of peace from that. But the great thing is that the Bible tells us who we are. It's given us the ultimate answer to that question, who am I? So first, we're going to start, like I said, broad, look at generally who is a man, who is a woman, humanity in general. And you could probably guess we're going to go all the way back to Genesis. Genesis 1 through 3 give us that foundation of who we are as people. Turn to Genesis 1. And I'm going to read verses 26 through 31 for us. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, so that they will have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that creeps on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given to you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has the fruit of the tree yielding seed. It shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, And to everything that creeps on the earth, which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This text tells us some crucial information. Note this. First, it tells us that you are a creature, a person who is created by God, and therefore you're under the authority of God. Second, you're a human person, a man or a woman, created in or as the image of God and according to the likeness of God. And that's to say that our function is to reflect or to represent or to image God and that we are in some way like God. We don't really have time to get into all that that means or entails, but just know that God made mankind different from the rest of the animals he created because only mankind was made in the image and in the likeness of God, and we're going to come back to that in a second. Now, I want to talk a little bit about this on a more individual level. Who are you specifically? Well, God creates individuals. Again, he's the creator, so he gets to decide who we are, and this applies to both Christians and to non-Christians. God creates people uniquely. And there's a verse I want you to look at, so turn to Exodus 4. Exodus 4, and I'm going to read verses 10 through 11. This is when Moses comes to God uh, in fear because of speaking before Pharaoh. Verse 10, Then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. The Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth, or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? God is the one who ultimately determines how a person is uniquely made and with which strengths and abilities and weaknesses and even their personalities. 
No person is an accident to the Lord. And even if you were a surprise to your parents, God purposefully planned for you and made you exactly the way you are, and God is glorified through how he has made each person uniquely. And there's a point of application we can make from this. If you, or since you, believe that all people have been created in the image of God, and that he has, by his own sovereign will, specifically designed each person the way that they are, that should produce in us a concern for their well-being, and it will direct the way you speak of them and the way you act towards them. This was convicting as I was studying this. Do we ever criticize or mock others, or do you see them as someone to pray for and to serve because they have inherent value due to the fact that God created them, and he created them in his own likeness? I think it would be a good habit for myself, for all of us, before we say anything about someone else to remind ourselves that the almighty God has designed that person uniquely and he's made them according to his likeness. And that when we're disparaging another person, we're actually criticizing the God who formed them. On a more positive note, man's design by God should give us a great motivation. We can encourage and we can bring the words of life to someone who's fashioned in the likeness of God. And we should never dismiss those one-on-one conversations that we have with other people or our prayers on behalf of others because those are all very meaningful activities because that person has value and is worthy of our time and our energy. This is the identity of humanity. We are individuals and we're created in the image and the likeness of God. But we know there's also a problem that exists within the human heart. After Adam was created, he was told in chapter 2, 16 through 17, that he could partake in all sorts of wonderful food from all the trees in the garden, save one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But what happened? Robin already mentioned this. Eve was tempted by the serpent. She and Adam ate the fruit, and they disobeyed God's command. Look at 3, verses 7 through 10 with me. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Then they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God in the midst of the trees of the garden. Yahweh God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Sin brought irreversible consequences. There's shame, fear, and guilt. Adam and Eve wanted to hide from God because they were now sinners, and they knew it. And I think in these verses, you can see the distance and the separation that now instantly exists between a holy God and sinful man. Adam plunged the entire human race into sin, and Romans 5 makes it clear that he brought sin on all mankind and that now we are, by both inheritance and by nature, sinners. And because of that, we are those who are in need of a Savior. To be a sinner is to be under the wrath of God, or according to Ephesians 2.3, it's to be a child of wrath, separated from fellowship with God, and you're hopeless in the world. And no one can escape that terrible identity by virtue of their own works or merit. There's only one way to change your identity from that of a child of wrath, without hope, to a child of God with a lasting hope and an eternal inheritance. 
those are the two most foundational identities which exist on earth. You're either a child of God or you're under his wrath. And your relationship with God is the one that matters more than any of anything else because it's going to dictate your eternal future as well as how this life in the present is infused with meaning. So what's the good news for sinners? It's that Jesus came to save sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15 tells us that. It's not incidental that Christ saves people. It's the, in fact the very reason that he came. So if we are sinners, and we are, there's hope because Jesus actually came for the purpose of saving people like us and changing us who we are from that of someone who's separated from God to someone who's been reconciled to God. How does that change happen? Well, it's by the life of Christ, which he gave on the cross as a substitute for us. He, the perfect son of God, atoned for sins by paying the penalty on the cross where the wrath of God was poured out. Moreover, Jesus was raised from the dead, showing that God's justice was met and that nothing remains for us to do. We can be reconciled to God. That gift of salvation is received through faith. Jesus says this in John 6, 40, for this is the will of my Father that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Romans puts it another way. Romans 10, 9 through 10 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, leading to righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, leading to salvation. And then a few verses down in verse 13, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you're not a Christian, the only way your identity can be changed is to turn from your life of sin and to embrace Jesus as Lord, believing that he is the son of God whose death paid for your sin and whose resurrection guarantees your future resurrection and eternal life. Now, let's look at that identity of those who are called in Christ, who have come to faith in him and who now love him and seek to obey him. So this is where we're talking about Christians specifically, our identity. There are many titles and descriptions in the New Testament for those who have believed on Jesus. And the list on the screen is not exhaustive. There are so many others. But just listen to the different ways that those who love Christ are identified. We're children of God. We're saints. We're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. We're disciples of Christ. We're his sheep. We are in Christ. We are members of the body of Christ. We're heirs. We're servants of Christ and we're slaves of Christ. We're the temple of the Spirit and we are his workmanship. And I love this because all those titles help us understand how multifaceted the, that our identity is in Christ. But there's a passage I really want to look at and take a few minutes to go through, and that's in 2 Corinthians 5. So I'm going to have you turn there, 2 Corinthians 5. This chapter provides multiple descriptions of the child of God, and it highlights our goal in this life and how it's even possible for us to achieve that goal. And I'm going to read starting at verse 17 through the end of the chapter. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself 
through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their transgressions against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So then we are ambassadors for Christ. As God is pleading through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This chapter is loaded with theology. In verse 17, we're told that believers are a new creation. So that is when you are born again by the Spirit, when he takes your sinful heart and he gives you a new heart with faith to believe in Christ as your Savior, you're made new. And I know sometimes it doesn't always feel that way, but that's the objective truth if you're saved. Scripture says that we are new creations. Our allegiance has changed from being a slave to sin to a loving God and now being a slave of righteousness. Romans 7 talks about that. And this doesn't mean that we don't struggle with sin because we still have that remnant of the flesh, the sin within us, but we now actually desire to kill sin and we have that power through the spirit who resides in us. So the Christian is a new creation. She is also, verse 20, an ambassador for Christ. I love that. That is so powerful. What does it mean to be an ambassador for Christ? It's to be a messenger or a representative of Christ who declares how sinners can be reconciled to God. And lastly, one of my favorite verses, verse 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This verse teaches that in the same way that Jesus took on our sin and bore the penalty for sin, though it did not originate in him, so we actually are the recipients of a righteousness and a righteous standing because we are united in Christ. We are imputed with his righteousness, and that righteousness is now accounted to us. And this is a miracle. There's no amount of self-control or hard work or sacrifice on our part that could actually reckon us righteous before God. It's only by his grace to unite us with Christ that we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. So we've looked at that first point, the who am I, from both its broadest sense of humanity, and then we've narrowed down now into the identity of the Christian. Now we're going to answer the second part, why? Why am I? And again, we're going to start with the most general, why did God make men and women? And we're not going to belabor this point. We're going to keep it simple because Mike Riccardi is talking about this in evening service. And he's Mike Riccardi, so I'm going to let him do that. <laughs> For us today, generally, we're going to see that he made men and women for his glory, ultimately so that God could display his attributes. Isaiah 43, 7 is a great verse that shows us this. God is speaking of his deliverance for his people and says, everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. Man was created for the glory of God and also to be a worshiper of God. In Deuteronomy 6, 13, God gave this command to his people, you shall fear only the Lord your God and you shall worship him and swear by his name. Further, if we look back at Genesis 1 and 2, Man was created, again, to be an image bearer of God, and this has the, the idea of representation, of being God's representatives on earth. 
having dominion over the rest of creation to rule it, to be a steward of it, and in so doing to reflect the character of God. Also, in Genesis, there's a relationship entailed uh, by the fact that we are created in the image of God. Remember, there's so much to this, but remember that God is one in essence and subsists in three persons. So, where we see this best, I think, is John 17, 22 through 24. So there was fellowship within the Godhead before humans were ever created. There was community, we could say that. But listen to these verses. This is Jesus praying to the Father. And he says this, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Thus, man being made in the likeness of God means, for one, that man is relational like God and meant to have communion with both God and with other people. And definitely the declaration God makes after he made Adam that it is not good for the man to be alone. It's not only speaking of marriage, but it's speaking of companionship in general. So all of this was and is God's design for mankind, and he will accomplish his purposes in bringing glory to himself. But consider this sobering thought. Each person will be used by God to glorify his name, whether they want to or not. Turn to Romans 9. Romans 9, verses 21 through 24. Paul writes, Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even so, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. God displays his character in both his work of salvation and in his work of judgment. And we know that God is patient so that we would come to repentance. Second Peter 3.9 tells us, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some consider slowness, but is patient toward you not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. However, each of us has that responsibility. We will be held accountable for our decision to either embrace Christ or to reject him. Going back to that last point, would you rather be a vessel to display God's great mercy and his grace, or would you rather be a vessel by which his justice and his wrath will be displayed? I want each of us to be a vessel for his mercy, to be his treasured child, and to be an ambassador of Christ, and to live with the hope that forgiveness brings. And that is the best love that you will ever receive, the love of Christ. If that is true for you, and I pray that it is or that it will be, let's talk about what that means for our why. If you are a Christian, why are you here? What's your purpose on this earth? All of those reasons that I mentioned still apply. We're still to be worshipers of God and to bring him glory with our lives. But the Christian now has specific ways to do that, which is what I want to focus on for the next few minutes. 
First, Christians have the purpose of participating in the mission of making disciples of all the nations. Matthew 28, 19 through 20, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And making disciples doesn't just mean sharing the gospel, though that is definitely a major part of it, but it's training others in what it means to follow Jesus. And that's where your role in the church comes in. We are to edify, to strengthen, and to build up the body of Christ. First Peter 4, 10 through 11 tells us this, as each one has received a gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks as one speaking the oracles of God, whoever serves as one serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and might forever and ever. Amen. The great thing for us is that we can bring glory to God in everything that we do. That's to be our main focus as we go about kind of our mundane tasks, our daily tasks. 1 Corinthians 10.31 is such a treasure. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I had a professor at TMU who used to say this. He would say, you can eat a tuna sandwich for the glory of God. And I love that because it's true. If you're doing it with thankfulness for God's provision, we really can bring him glory in the little things. And of course, one way that we bring God glory is by declaring what he's done. 1 Peter 2.9 says this, but you are a chosen family, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Being a Christian gives us such purpose. We are those who can bring glory to God by taking part in the disciple-making mission that Jesus left, and we serve the church, we can build up the body of Christ, and in every little thing we do, we can bring God glory, both in our words and in our deeds. But what does that mean for you personally? How does your identity impact today and impact next week? This is going to lead us to our third point, what now? There's so much that we could say to this, but I'm only addressing one particular aspect, what now? Contentment. For the Christian, a proper understanding and an embracing of your identity in Christ should bring great contentment. What hinders us from being content with who we are, where we are, and what we have? I see it in three primary ways. First, a failure to trust in God's promises, a failure to submit to God's purposes, and a failure to comprehend the great privilege of who we are in Christ. Let's spend a couple minutes on that first part. A failure to trust in the promises of God. There are many things that are going to tempt us to doubt God's goodness and his kindness toward us. Broken friendships, disappointments in school, at work, hurt caused by others, maybe financial burdens. The list could go on. But I think the antidote is actually very simple, and it comes down to our belief in the promises of God. Do we believe Psalm 8411? For Yahweh God is a sun and shield. Yahweh gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk blamelessly. 
do you believe that when you're desiring something so badly and you've prayed for it and God isn't giving it to you? Can you truly say, no good thing does he withhold? That should be our treasure in those moments of waiting, that he's not withholding anything that's truly good for us. Do you believe Romans 8, 26 through 32? And in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who indeed did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you believe those words when you're diagnosed with cancer or some other illness? Can you say God is causing this to work for good? It should be a source of great strength to remember that God has already given us his precious son, Jesus, to redeem us. How would he not give us anything else that we're going to need in this life? The sovereign God of the universe knows what you need. And for those who love him, he has called us his children. He does everything for our eternal good. He doesn't withhold anything needlessly. Remind yourself of that promise for his children and let your heart rest in that when it's troubled. Let's talk about the second reason, though, that we can sometimes be discontent a lack of submission to his purposes. And this can be very hard to swallow. But being a Christian makes, means that we have to give up our life. We put all of our preferences, our hopes, and our dreams into his hands, and then we joyfully submit to whatever he has for us. Do you submit to God's particular and specific design for your life? This really hits home for me. It was convicting to study because if I'm honest— Sometimes I just don't want the things that God wants for me. So what do I do in those times? Well, I remind myself of scripture. And I pray that the Lord would make me content as he teaches me through his word. Look at Luke 9, 23 through 24. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. The Christian life is a life of denial of self to follow Jesus wherever he leads. And the more that I look to Jesus, the more that I want to follow him. How about this great truth from 1 Corinthians 6.20? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. We are God's possession. We've already seen that today. If you're a Christian, he chose you out of sin and out of a life of despair, and he brought you into the family of God. That is an infinite good. But you have to recognize then that your life is not your own. He will use it as he sees best, but because he's all loving and all wise, we can trust in that. Listen to what Thomas Watson, who's one of my favorite Puritan writers, and he wrote The Art of Divine Contentment. I would recommend that to all of you. He wrote this, 
the wise God has ordered our condition. If he sees that it is better for us to abound, we shall abound. And if he sees that it is better for us to want, we shall want. Be content to be at God's disposal. That's a humbling phrase. Be content to be at God's disposal. But that should be our heart's desire because we love him and we trust him. And he's going to equip you for everything he has in store for you. But why can this still be so hard? Let's talk about comparison. Comparison, which has been called an odious task. We do it so naturally, though, don't we? We look around at what others have or who they are, and we say, I want to be like her, or why can't I also have what she has? And that can send us into very bad spirals in our thinking, where we can even doubt God's love for us because we're evaluating his love based on what he has given to us. And let's get practical and personal for a moment. What is it that you see that makes you discontent? I have two sisters, as Lauren mentioned, and they are amazing women of God. But God has not designed them and their lives the same way that he has designed mine. They are multi-talented, they are funny and beautiful and smart, and they both got married to godly Christian men very young. One was 18, one was 20, and now they have beautiful children. Well, I know God has blessed me in so many ways, in so many great things about my life, but I have been tempted at times to compare myself to them and say, why, Lord, was that not also my life, right? And the answer is, I don't know. (laughs) Super helpful, right? I don't know. (laughs) But I also don't need to know because I know that God's ways are always best and he gets to direct my life as he sees fit. And it's my job to be faithful and to follow. Plus, you don't want someone else's life because God did not design it for you. But you might be thinking, that's not fair. Why would God not give me the same thing as another person? Or does God not love me as much as that person? But if that's our thinking, we don't have a good grasp on the love of God. He loves his children far too much to just give us what we want or what we think we need. He's actually going to give us what we truly need. And he is the giver of all good gifts. Watson says this, and I think it is so helpful. He says, There is one promise that brings much sweet contentment into the soul. They that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. If the thing we desire is good for us, we shall have it. If it is not good, then not having it is good for us. Resting satisfied with this promise gives contentment. Well, in our last few minutes together, I want to look at that third point of why we often, sometimes, can be discontent And that would be a failure to comprehend the great privilege of who we are in Christ. And this, of course, goes back to everything that we've talked about already, about our identity. And I would encourage you, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, to remind yourself often of all the benefits that you receive by being a member of the family of God. Put your focus on who you are in Christ and what God has promised to you. That is going to bring contentment to your heart. So to end, I want to highlight realities of how God loves his children. And these are what we need to remember and to recite to ourselves when we're struggling against discontent or when we're wrestling with those questions of why or why not. 
And again, this is not by any means an exhaustive list, but I think it will be helpful, and I would encourage you on your own to do this, to make a list of what God the Father, God the Son, and what the Holy Spirit do for the ones who love God, because it's amazing, and it will calm your heart in those times when you're troubled. God sees you. Psalm 33:18 says, Behold, the eye of Yahweh is on those who fear him, on those who wait for his loving kindness. God knows you. Psalm 139, 1-3 says, O Yahweh, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. God hears you. Psalm 4-3. But know that Yahweh has set apart the Holy One for himself. Yahweh hears when I call to him. God cares for you. 1 Peter 5, 6-7, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Jesus loves you. Romans eight thirty five. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? And there's then that whole list of things. The answer is nothing. Jesus will never cast you out. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. Jesus is protecting your salvation. John 10, 27 through 28, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, ever, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus is with you always. Matthew 28, 20, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Well, what about the Holy Spirit? The Spirit regenerates and he sanctifies you. Titus 3, 5, he saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit intercedes for you. You've already seen this in Romans 8, 26 through 27. And in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit also leads you, Romans eight fourteen. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. And lastly, the Spirit dwells in you, and will raise you up from Romans 8, 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. If you are a Christian, the entire Trinity is watching over you, leading you, protecting you, helping you, and will be with you forever. And our identity is secure through Christ, and we know that we have an inheritance waiting us in heaven. And until we get there, we can be content and we can be of good courage, knowing that the words of Psalm 119.58 are true of God. You are good and do good. Let me pray for us. Lord, we recognize that you have made each of us the way you desire. We know that you are sovereign. I ask that you would help us all to be confident in who you have made us and our position in Christ if we are believers. And for those who sit here who are not part of your family, 
I ask that you would save them, that you would draw them to Christ and give them the joy of being one of your dear children. Help us, Lord, to be faithful and to follow Christ with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.